This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Welcome to Primal Screen, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I am your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, and within the virtual studio, we have the return of Flick Ford. Hello. Hello. And <laughs> it's nice jo- to be back. It is. It's nice to have you back. <laughs> uh, and joining us again from the COVID-free oasis of Adelaide is Stewie Richards. Ahoy, hoy. <laughs> oh, Stewie, so nice to have you back too. Yeah, it's good to be back again. <laughs> Three, Three in weeks row. in a row, I know. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a joy to have you both here. Given Melbourne cinemas are closed again, sadly, for the next six weeks, we'll continue with our popular ISO Spotlight episodes. And we're devoting this episode to Hallyu, or the South Korean wave of cinema that bubbled during the late 90s and exploded during the 2000s and beyond. We'll be looking at movies from three of the wave's most prominent directors and films. First, we'll follow a mother investigating her son's arrest for murder in Bong Joon-ho's Mother from 2009. Then we'll luxuriate in Park Jan-wook's lusty, twisty South Korean relocation of Sarah Waters' Fingersmith in 2016's The Handmaiden. And finally, we'll cram upon the zombie express in Yeong Sang-ho's breathless horror picture, 2016's Train to Busan. Also, as you listen to us chatting about these films, please feel free to hit us up on our social media channels and leave a comment. Just search for Primal Screen on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now it's time for the Primal Screen News Bulletin for the week. Here at Primal Screen, we would just like to spotlight a couple of local film festivals who are going online for this upcoming weekend only. From Friday the 17th to Sunday the 19th of July, Melbourne's beloved queer film festival, MQFF, will be screening a program of four feature films and a package of Australian short films. The features are the Nigerian gay drama Walking with Shadows, the Filipino lesbian drama Billy and Emma, the Argentinian trans sci-fi drama Brief Story from the Green Planet, and the US documentary about WikiLeaks whistleblower Chelsea Manning, XY Chelsea. Head over to the Melbourne Queer Film Festival's website at mqff.com.au to grab your tickets now. You've seen one of these, Stuart. I have. I've seen Brief Story from the Green Planet, the Argentinian film. Uh, That won the Teddy Award uh, in 2019, which is the best LGBTQ-themed film at the Berlin Film Festival. Um, It's pretty wacky, I will (laughs) say. It's good good fun, though. It's a really great story. Uh, I feel like there's always got to be a wacky wacky festival inclusion, doesn't there? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You can't have a festival without some of that. Hell yeah. no. I love MQFF films when they get wacky. 
Yeah. Saw it, I saw an Indonesian film about zombies once. It was insane. Um, <laughs> the other film festival heading online this week uh, is one perhaps less familiar to Melbourne audiences, but who, in this time of social lockdown, are taking advantage of a rare opportunity to find a wider audience. The Castle Maine Documentary Film Festival will be screening three feature films over the weekend to in-person audiences of up to 40 people per session, as well as online. The three films are the Canadian documentary Picture Character, which explores the history and impact of the humble emoji, the Australian doc Into the Jungle about a zookeeper couple who leave their Melbourne home to embark on a journey to Papua New Guinea to save one of the world's rarest animals from extinction, and the Canadian film What is Democracy, which speaks to a diverse roster of people at various social strata to break down that very question. Head over to the Castle Maine Documentary Film Festival's website at cdocff, so that's cdocff.com.au, and grab your tickets now. And just to just remember, these mini versions of the Melbourne Queer Film Festival and the Castle Maine Documentary Film Festival are screening this coming weekend only, Friday the 17th to Sunday the 19th of July. Now, a small primer on light on Hallyu the South Korean wave, or Hollywood, as it's sometimes affectionately known. Tonight's spotlight on South Korean cinema is only slightly late, as last year, Korea's North and South celebrated their once unified centenary of cinema, 100 years after the debut of 1919's The Righteous Revenge, considered the first Korean film, uh, what was called a kino film, which was a moving image backdrop to actors performing a play on stage. The first ever feature film proper made in Korea would arrive four years later with 1923's The Vow Made Below the Moon. Seismic socio-political turmoil from decades of Japanese rule to the Korean War to the nation's division into North and South played havoc with the country's film output. So it took until the 1960s, starting with Kim Ki-young's 1960 classic The Housemaid, for the Korean film industry to really begin to build itself out of almost nothing. The 1970s and 80s saw a steady increase in film production, not to mention the odd South Korean director being kidnapped by Kim Jong-il's goons and forced to make the films for uh, North Korea. Seriously, look it up. It's so fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) There's a book as well. (laughs) Bizarre. One is like a Godzilla-type movie. It's it's so wild. Uh, As a small, rising group of South Korean filmmakers represented a new wave locally, if not internationally. It wasn't until the very late 1990s when local blockbusters like Kang Jiu's uh, Shiri and Park Chan-wook's joint security area became the first films to sell over 5 million tickets in South Korea alone, followed by hits like My Sassy Girl, Friend and Taeguki, The Brotherhood of War. All leading up to that man again, Park Chan-wook, taking Khan by storm with 2003's Old Boy, at which point the cinema of South Korea went from a growing film festival curiosity to a full-blown art house and cult phenomenon. As directors like Park, Bong Joon-ho, Kim Ji-woon, and a personal favourite of mine, Na Na Hong-jin, exploded onto the genre film scene with hits like The Host, A Tale of Two Sisters, and The Chaser, while filmmakers like Lee Chang-dong, Kim Kuduk, and MIF favourite Hong Sang-soo became regular darlings at Cannes with films like Secret Sunshine, Spring, Summer, Fall, Winter, and Spring, and Tale of Cinema. 
Their films had heavy class and political subtext and showed an effortless, breathless ability to shift genres within the same film, sometimes within the same scene. As these filmmakers and their stars' reputations grow, making films in Hollywood and at home with actors like Bi, uh, Lee Byung-hun, Bae Duna, and Choi Min-sik appearing in English-language films and a thriving blockbuster cinema of their own at home, responsible for over 200 movies a year nowadays, all leading up to Bong Joon-ho and South Korea winning their first Khan Palm Door and then doing what Bergman, Fellini, Kurosawa, and Almodovar could not becoming the first film not in the English language to win the Oscar for Best Picture. To quote the old Virginia Slims ad, South Korea's come a long way, baby. (laughs) (laughs) So now, listeners, please join us on the couch for our first film. Mother from 2009 is the fourth feature film directed by Bong Joon-ho. An unnamed widow lives alone with her only son, Do-Joon, who is shy but prone to attacking anyone who mocks his intellectual disability. She dotes on Do-Joon and scolds him for hanging out with a local thug. On his way home from a late night out, Do-Joon sees a high school girl walking alone and follows her to an abandoned building. The next morning, she is discovered dead on on a rooftop and despite only circumstantial evidence tying him to the crime scene, Dojun is arrested and tricked into signing a confession, beginning an obsessive quest by his mother to prove his innocence. Stewie, did yes. this... I've got to do it. I'm sorry. Um, did this lesser-known hit from the bong uh, see you bliss or green out? <laughs> oh, God, Paul. That you reached a whole new Thank you. <laughs> I did not see that one coming. Uh, I really love this film. I actually saw this for the first time a few weeks ago on Mother's Day. Oh, wow. Uh, (laughs) Intentionally? Uh, uh, No, I mean, no, it wasn't intentionally, but I started watching it and I realised it was Mother's Day as I was uh, seeing it. Um, So I thought it was very fitting. Um, I think this is a really smart film. It's quite bleak. Mm. Um, which quite surprised me because Parasite visually is so beautiful um, that when I sort of went back and watched this one, um, that really kind of starkness, that's the starkness to that difference is, um, is really interesting. I think uh, the use of space in the film is really interesting, the way how, I guess, uh, um, I guess these sort of corridors and, and sort of bedrooms are really uh, navigated are really uh, quite wonderful. But I love how he deconstructs the murder mystery here. Um, usually with a murder mystery, and this is set up as a classic murder mystery, someone's been killed and we have this detective who is sort of on the outskirts of the law trying to figure out who the killer is. Um, to sort of prove her son's innocence. Um, But as we go along this mystery, I think it gets a bit frustrating because there are no other suspects and there are no clues. And so for more than half the film, the mother in question just keeps on coming up against this brick wall. And I find that really, really interesting, the way um, our expectations of a detective film are completely subverted. Mm, absolutely it's such a like the whole idea of it being kind of in that um wrong man um 
true crime, um, sorry, crime thriller mm. genre. It's kind of one of the the best of this genre I've seen. I think I um I was really taken back by this film. I saw it just the other day, and I something that I had read uh, a little bit about it beforehand, but. I feel like I've got a really high threshold for watching violence on screen and 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 gore, but I find it uh, particularly upsetting when characters have an intellectual disability and they're either mistreated or tortured. Um, my younger brother has Down syndrome and autism, and I think that watching this film was really quite heartbreaking and a difficult watch for me. Having said that, um, and Stu, you were saying before that you found it really bleak, and I agree with that. It is like this huge amount of bleakness. Um, the fact that it's kind of one of those towns where murder doesn't even seem, they talk about the fact that this is the first murder in mm. however many years, but the town just seems sus. There's something going <laughs> on. So it's kind of like I find that surprising. Um, it is bleak, but it also is incredibly funny in parts and also quite lively, particularly uh, the mother. I thought that she was really fascinating as a character. You really see her tenacity and her determination. And the film has this lovely tagline of, um, I think it's something like she really loves her son or what is, uh, I can't remember, uh, don't hate, what is it, don't hate my son. Don't hate my son, I won't stand it. And I think that there's something really powerful about this film in um Opening up that discussion of what it would be like to to be caring for her son, who she's, uh, she, you know, he has um, an intellectual disability that's never really kind of um, given too much detail, but he does have a lot of difficulty remembering things, which of course plays into this idea of of the of the crime. Um, but there's also this uh, one of the key things is how. Um, he always gets told to defend himself and I think that there's a lot of really powerful moments in this film in which he's called a retard, which um, is a really offensive term to refer to someone and I think there's something really quite, there's a buzz about this film that it's a very, and like um, Bong is so good with those sorts of social issues where he kind of cuts a little deeper and it's always with a little bit of um, humour. So I was just really um, blown away by this. But on a, to step away from the narrative a little bit, just formally, this is an exceptionally um, well-crafted film. It's possibly one of, um, it has so many beautiful moments and the framing, like there's this, it opens with her dancing in the field and apparently mm-hmm. um, Bong was off off camera dancing with her to make her feel more comfortable. <laughs> and um, not to give anything away, but there's a scene at the very end in which um, the woman, uh, the mother, gets up to dance and it's, I, I just love it. Everything about the framing of that, this kind of slightly out of focus um, shot through the bus window. It's mm. and the music comes in, and I just thought, wow, this film is just on an art, on an formal level is exceptional. It really is. Um, so thank you so much for picking this, Paul. It really, uh, it's. I'm still processing it, mm. but it is one of. Um, it's a film that's definitely stuck stuck with me so far. I'm so glad you two have had this reaction. Um, here's the thing: I picked this film tonight because. Excluding his first two films, Barking Dogs Never Bite and Memories of Murder, which I've never seen and are notoriously difficult to find here. This was the only Bong Joon-ho film I've seen that I didn't love. And I wanted to see 11 years since I saw it at Miffin 09, whether it was, and given what he's done since, whether it's the film's fault or mine. Is it him or is it me? Mm. Um, I've got to say, 
I I think it's a very, very, very good film, but it doesn't quite hit me the way every other Bong film I've seen has. Mm. Um, not only Parasite and the Host, but also Snowpiercer and Okja. They all just hit me like a ton of bricks, bricks at some point. And this also, I love that you're talking about a twist film by having a twist yourself. To this <laughs> <laughs> it's not your favorite film oh, of the week. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, although you think this is a twist film, boy, yeah. do we have a twist film coming up. Yeah. Pri- Primal has layers. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, uh, it's got the elements of his other films. It's got the class inquiry. I love how obsessed by class he is. Mm. Like it's always such an intriguing. Um, he uh, he's you know he has a, a downtrodden or marginalized lead. He has twists and turns. I feel particularly in regards to the class stuff within a genre framework. I really do believe he's the heir and the successor to someone like George A. Romero in the way he uses genre stories to dissect class and the values of capitalism. I think he's brilliant at it, and of all sort of modern filmmakers, he's the guy that sort of really nails that in a genre space. But it just feels, I don't know, whereas all of his other films I've seen of his seem to take an epic emotional or psychological scope um, or sociological scope. And from what I've heard of Memories of Murder, that does too. This feels like a little film noir he knocked out in between the other movies. It just, it just like, even though it's still over two hours long, um, I almost feel like this is bong in a minor key, which is still better than 90% of what other <laughs> filmmakers turn out. It's very good. It's a very good film, but for him, I just feel like it's him at it, it, muted. I actually, um, I actually thought you would get so into the technical side because there's um even a special um you know every frame of painting the mm. YouTube um doesn't I don't think they do it anymore but there's one on on this film and um I thought you'd get really into it, Paul. Yeah, yeah maybe I should check it out. Um, yeah, the, it's quite it's, interesting. It's talking about the profile shot. Mm. It's. I mean, there's beautiful cinematography in this. It's all shot in 235 anamorphic. I mean, it. You know, it is a bong film in every way. Like it's. It's classily directed. It switches tone incredibly nimbly. As you say, flick. It's very funny at times. Yeah. And as you say, Stewie, very bleak at others. <laughs> often one scene to the next. I think that's um, like my favourite combo. Maybe that's why I liked it so much. Like yeah. bleak and funny, sign me up. <laughs> I'm down. Yeah. Um, I just feel like the characters seem to start with a deep base, but then we don't really get to know anybody much more well than that. I feel like with the, the families in the host of Parasite or the passengers in Snowpiercer, we're much more finely drawn. We're much more drawn into them. Um, I love small, tight and compact movies. And that's what most film noirs often are. And I don't feel like this is that for Bong. It just feels like it just feels like minor. It just feels like him working at a minor key. And I, yeah, I really, really like this film, but I've never quite loved it. The first time I thought I had a reaction because I, because I grew up with a rather overprotective aunt, and I think I was slightly mm. triggered. <laughs> Could be it. <laughs> by my first viewing of the film, but this time I came armed with that and going, okay, don't see it through that lens. Shake that off you know, take it on its own terms. And I liked it a lot more. But, yeah, it's still probably my least favourite Bong, but like I said, better than 90% of other filmmakers ever. <laughs> uh, it, it is really interesting to see his career develop, though. So mm. seeing how refined he is with Parasite, 
going back and actually sort of seeing a sort of an earlier almost version of that class critique, I think is really interesting. But I do agree that it is quite long. Mm. Um, and so for me, that it is a little exhausting, uh, but that probably added to the bleakness. <laughs> oh, I'm going to just shout a, a quick little like, please go and watch it to our listeners because I love this film. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's great. And I think, um, you know, he's such an interesting director. He's got such a, a broad range of genres that he goes into. Like Okja is another one of my, I really enjoy that I film as Okja well. I love so much. And I feel like he just, he he takes us to these really dark emotional places and he just pushes us further. And I don't know, I, I really, I really got into this. It's difficult, like, mm. Definitely have some time afterwards to maybe have a bit of a cry in the shower, but it's it's good. <laughs> I, that's the thing. I I agree. Like I will qualify my my review by saying when I saw it at MIF, everyone around me adored it, and I was like the one that was like uh, like muted. So I am most definitely in the minority here, and it is absolutely like every Bong Joon Ho film. It is absolutely worth seeing. Yeah, for sure. So if you'd like to do so, Mother is now available to rent or buy via YouTube, Apple TV Plus and Google Play. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flickford, Stewie Richards and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. Now, join us by the computer, television, or dare I say smartphone of your choice for our second film of the evening. The Handmaiden from 2016 is the 10th feature film directed by Park Chan-wook. Split into three chapters and transporting Welsh, Welsh, Welsh author Sarah Waters' novel Fingersmith to a 1930s career under Japanese occupation, a young woman is hired as a handmaiden to a Japanese heiress who lives a secluded life on a large countryside estate with her domineering uncle. But the maid has a secret. She is a pickpocket recruited by a swindler posing as a Japanese count to help him seduce the heiress to elope with him rob her of her fortune, and lock her up in a madhouse. The plan seems to proceed according to plan until the women discover some unexpected emotions and the story springs ever more secrets. Flick, I'm hoping that, befitting this film, your review has a review within a review that's a MacGuffin for the review to follow, only then revealed to be another review. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I feel like I go on so many tangents with my reviews. It kind of is. <laughs> There's always some little stupid story that goes with this. Uh, look, this film is, um, I'm so glad to have had an opportunity to talk about this film on air because it's one of my all-time faves. Um, I remember seeing it and just being so blown away by it that I ended up going back into the cinema and watching it a few days after. Um, it's such a beautiful film, like just firstly off the off the bat, like the intricacy of the fabrics and the close-ups on um, the skin and the touch and um, all these processes around being a handmaiden are exceptional and these really ornate books in the library. There's, there's so much detail in this film um, and it's a really interesting space that he set this in. So it's in this kind of like cost cross-cultural politics of like 1930s Asia and um, this tension between Japan and Korea and I 
don't know that much about the history, but I actually, this film prompted me to go back and sort of read a bit more about what was going on there. And it's so interesting that it's also an, an adaptation of sorts. I mean, I think adaptation is a very loose term for this. Um, Sarah Waters has said that uh, she did get sent a copy of the script and she said, I think a, a more appropriate term would be inspired by. <laughs> um, so hence why it was changed. Um, and, you know, Chan Wook has done uh, adaptations of sorts before. First is actually based on Emil Zola's book. And um, so he's yeah. kind of like, he's he's gone into that territory before. But this is really something altogether different. And I was really interested to see, you know, like Fingersmith is such a, a key uh, piece of literature within uh, queer queer literature, and I was really curious to see how he was going to approach these lesbian love scenes and like what what the kind of responses were, not just from the queer community but also Waters herself. And I did do a bit of research into this, and she was talking about the way in which she did have her concerns, but she was saying that. Often, um, so Fingersmith, the book is about sort of, this is a quote from her, is about finding space for women to be with each other away from prying eyes. And it's really interesting because I feel like the film does capture that and he does that in a really interesting way. It does seem almost like a performance of these bodies, but he also... um, He's also he's also critiquing pornography, and these women are are often, and particularly the handmaiden herself. I'm sorry, the lady herself at the centre of this. She's often put in this um, very fixed role, and it is to you kind of read out these pornographic um, books for her disgusting uncle, who's like got this ink fetish, and um, it's it's fascinating. Like it's such a great setup. I, there's so much in this film. I don't even know where to begin. Um, I just love it. I think that you know, cinema to me is actually all about that sort of the art of the tease, and this film is a really perfect encapsulation of that. So it has a lot of. Um, a striptease of sorts in how the information is revealed about the characters. It's got this beautiful three-part act um, and it kind of titillates us in not just an obvious way of like very sexy scenes but actually on the way in which we're drawn into these narratives and the characters and they're such lively characters and we're saying before about how there is a quite a lot of humour in um uh, mother and I feel like this film, um, The Handmaiden, has a lot of humour in it as well and a lot of liveliness, m- much more than mother, but also like it's such an engaging and enthralling pace to it as well. I, I can't say enough good things about it. It's awesome. <laughs> it's really like quite a, it's huge and ridiculously over, um, ridiculously long running time, but um, so much in it. Yeah, that's that's my kind of thing. It's like I... I'm usually anathema to long to hefty running times, but this film is like a mini series. Yeah, There's, it's a whole lot of movie. Yeah. Uh, Stewie, what what is your, what were your thoughts? Oh, so I um, whenever I watch this film, I it it takes me a while to really process my thoughts on it because it's so hypnotic, hmm. and I always just get lost in it and you know marveling at you know the set and the costumes and and the, you know the poetry of it all that I actually don't like. I didn't write anything down for this show. <laughs> Just stood there, sat there and gaped. Yeah. Does it happen in I've, front of you? I've literally got hypnotic, elegant <laughs> score. Wonderful. <laughs> That's it. That's my review. Um, I'm obsessed with the score for this film. Yeah. Um, so by Joe Young Wook, I think it's incredible. 
Um, and just the, the the many layers of the narrative that there's so many kind of shocking moments that you're like, oh, that person is scamming that person. And then there's like a twist and you, you realize it's the other way around. And it's, it's such a well thought out narrative. Um, and just once again, it's so visually stunning. Um, it's that sense of like haptic cinema where you can really mm. almost feel you know, physically the cinema, like the clothes and, and like the wood of the the set. It's. I think, oh, sorry to interrupt, Stuart. Isn't that such a crucial element of queer cinema? A lot of, particularly, particularly with lesbian love scenes, it seems like there's a such a focus in on fabric and mm. um, the touch and stuff like that. It's just something I've noticed. And I was, yeah, I've, I've noticed it, especially in this film. Yeah, and one thing that I. I, I guess really appreciated um, you know, about the the lesbian love scenes is that they were very joyful. Yeah. Um, and that, I mean, that seems quite silly, but I was comparing the sex scenes in this to Blue is the Warmest oh, Colour. Yeah. I was thinking of that film at the and same I time as well. I hated that film oh, so much. Really? And also hearing about how the actresses themselves hated filming it and they mm. felt exploited that and in blue is the woman's color you could literally switch you could get sort of the you know you could edit the film and switch those sex scenes around and it would make no difference mm. to the film whatsoever and where i've, I've never seen so div- much ass slapping in a film in my life but, <laughs> but it, continue. I, I know so i i mean you know there's a response he had um uh chen wook has uh, responded to that with saying that one of the main things you want to do because Korea is, um, particularly a lot of the older Koreans, can there is quite a lot of homophobia, but the younger generations are a lot more accepting. And so what he wanted to do was when people were watching those scenes was to have a lightness to it so that because there, there's a really funny bit where the two women are having this really steamy um, sex scene and they kept on being like, I'm doing it for the count. Like this is what the count would do to me. <laughs> and it's so fantastic because it's like playing with that idea of like, oh, I'm just, you know, just learning about what I might do with my future husband. Um, <laughs> I'm not really, you know, I'm not really attracted to this woman. And he really wanted to go for that. He wanted for people to laugh, even if they if they, you know, may have had, res- you know, have different views, but that mm. that would be their response. Yeah, I mean, it's so over the top. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. really is. Yeah. Especially the scene with the um, the two silver balls. Yes. yes. <laughs> the tinkle. <laughs> the, t- the tinkling, it's so yeah. funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's great. I've, it's such a wonderful film and just like watching it is such an experience that usually I'm kind of... I get a bit uh, wary of those very long films sometimes when they start exceeding two hours, personally. Um, I know that's like an anti-Cinevile statement to no, say. No, no I'm, I'm all board. the way with you here. Yeah. 90 minutes yeah. is my fave. Yeah. Pacing is good. Like, yeah. don't, don't overstay your welcome. But honestly, this film could go for over three hours and I'd be happy. Yeah. It's such a great film. There's a great quote. It's like, uh, films should be up to 100 minutes. Every minute after that, you have to earn. Yeah, um, that's a good this, And this really earns it. Um, I've been a huge Park Chan-wook fan since I saw Old Boy back yes. in 2004 at MIP. I actually thought you would pick Old Boy this week, Paul. Well, it's not, I the, yeah. I mean, I wanted to go streaming. something not obvious um, yeah. <laughs> and not sort of big, you know, like. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, uh, and that this came at a time, though, when The Handmaiden came out, I remember it came at a time when I thought he'd lost a bit of his invincibility. Like, I'm a cyborg, but that's okay, is aptly named. 
Um, Stoker is a gorgeous film with a pretty wonky script. Mm. Um, and so much of First is brilliant, but it's still probably about 20 minutes too long. I just continue to be delighted that this film exists because The Handmaiden is Park's reminder that, okay, even though he has to share the crown with Bong Joon-ho now, he's still the king. Like, yeah. this film is such a statement, such a... Yeah. Um, the word I keep coming back to again and again regarding Park Chan-wook's word, uh, work is Baroque. Mm. It yeah. always feels Baroque to me, the best of his stuff. And the other film... With this film also, I also feel, feel like The Handmaiden is brought to you by the word lush. Everything about this is lush. How the hell did this film only cost $8.8 million US dollars? I don't understand how this all, isn't. It's all fakes, that's why. Right. How is this not a $50 million movie? <laughs> I was, like, sorry, that was a boring joke. <laughs> <laughs> I won't try jokes again. No, please. Keep going. Just got stony faces. I was just, <laughs> when you have to say it's a joke, that's always a sign. <laughs> I was just running in the wrong direction. I was just running in the direction. I didn't, you know. Sorry. I'm sorry. We can do it again and I'll laugh next to yeah, yeah. Um, We'll edit it. We'll edit it. <laughs> Um, it's it's astonishing. It's so elaborately designed and directed. It's a puzzle box of a film in both form and function, but also a sensual queer love story wrapped in a twisty con artist flick. I just, every time I watch this film, I realise this feels like such a major work to me. Mm. Like I was talking about Mother feeling like a minor work for Bong Joon-ho. This feels like such a major cinematic work that I'm continually surprised and a bit shocked the rest of the world doesn't feel the same way. Like this yeah. just... Yeah, it just feels massive. Isn't it? it and, and also, like, if the whole point of films is, you know, a large part of it is telling stories, this is possibly, like, a masterclass in how to tell stories and how to introduce characters. Like, there's, it's so, I know it's a long film, but it's so economical with that information and he's able to fit in so much in this time. Like, just as far as storytelling goes, it's one of the most powerful um, storytellers I think we've got in operating today. Yeah, and when he's on song, he's breathtaking to watch, like mm. the way he uses music. And he's such a fan of these lush compositions. Uh, yeah. There's that word again. But, you know, he's a big fan of the Hitchcockian, you know, the Hitchcockian strings. Like, he mm. loves that sort of thing. And it just keeps swelling throughout this movie so beautifully. And then you're looking at these incredible and, – and, and then, of course, the, the beautiful thing with Park Chan-wook is he gets frigging weird. <laughs> Like by the time we're at the end in that room with that fish tank, oh like, it's my like, god, what is happening? <laughs> when, when you're in the basement, the yes. the, the yes. emphasis on ink starts to make sense. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. I just love all the little like the tiny threats of the basement, and you're like, that just doesn't sound good, does it? Yeah. Like <laughs> no. Remember, What's like in one the basement actually says to it, remember the basement. <laughs> Okay, this is a Park Chan-wook film. Let's <laughs> yeah. not forget the basement. Yeah, I just think he's such a singular vision. Like the word visionary is thrown, thrown around a lot in uh, movie promotional materials these days. But Park Chan-wook, when he's on song, is a true visionary. Like it's just it's beautiful to watch. Mm, absolutely. So thank you for, uh, for putting this in front of us again, Flick. Oh, yeah. my pleasure. Freaking great film. Yeah. So The Handmaiden is now available to rent or buy on Apple TV Plus, the artist formerly known as iTunes. Triple R. 
You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Stewie Richards, Flick Ford, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. Now, join us in our living room, if you please, for our final film of the evening. Evocative sound clip there. Train to Busan from 2016 is the fifth feature and the first live action feature directed by Yon Song Ho. A cynical fund manager and divorced dad, Suk Woo's, begrudgingly boards a a train to Busan with his young daughter, Suan, who wants to spend her birthday with her mother after her dad missed her performance at a school recital, causing her to freeze up on stage. On the train, the joined by an assortment of passengers, including an expectant couple, a selfish businessman, a high school baseball team, a couple of elderly sisters, and a homeless stowaway. As the train departs, an infected woman suddenly boards, turns into a zombie, and attacks an attendant, beginning a rapid infection, an increasingly rapid body count, and a breathless fight for survival. Stewie, last week you picked a bus, this week a train. I feel this is all (laughs) building up to you covering snakes on a plane on the show. Uh, Was this a bullet train or an old rattler or kind of both? Um, I love this film because in a zombie apocalypse, the true villains are greedy capitalists. (laughs) (laughs) Which makes me realise that in a lot of uh, contemporary South Korean cinema, there are there are these you know class warfare sort of moments. There's these class critiques. Sometimes they're very subtle. Other times they are very very in your face, like Train to Busan. <laughs> um, it's um, there are some really devastating moments um, with sort of towards the end. Um, but overall, it's just this high octane zombie flick um and you know it's it's a very controversial zombie film because they run they're fast moving which i know george a romero really hates he wants them to be slow and shuffling um but uh yeah it's um it's a great zombie film um there's not much more to say (laughs) (laughs) it's funny that you um that you say that it's really like comment on the fast pace this was such hectic viewing i have only seen this film twice and the first time i saw it i saw it with my friend chris and we were those obnoxious people in the cinema like there's some teenage boys behind us and my friend chris and i were just like no don't do that Ah!" (laughs) sort of responding to everything that they and I've never done that before in a film, but this film brought it out in us. Um, I I really enjoy this film. I I'm got I'm such a scaredy cat, but this was a real joy to watch. Uh, it is really stressful. I had a um, I was thinking about what could be more stressful, and maybe like if you coupled it with maybe like uncut gems or a good time yes. or something like that. But um, it is super stressful. Managers say really you know, fast paced. It's exciting. Um, I kind of love the fact that there's also this anti-hero at the mi- the middle, you know, this kind of deadbeat dad. And I was reading up a bit about like what, because I, I think that this is, this whole week has actually been a really good um, education for me on South Korean cinema. And I was curious to know, um, it felt like all of the films that were reviewed tonight have all kind of been commenting in some way about social issues and you're saying that before in your intro Paul about the way in which the cinema of um 
of South Korea has really responded to some of these things, these issues, but in quite a different way, like often with genre films. And um, I was reading about the tragedy of um, 2014, which like 300 people were killed in a ferry that overturned. And interestingly enough, the government um, wanted to save face and they told, they instructed news media to report that no one, that everyone had survived. And yeah, and I just thought like the way in which, um, and there's also another case of um, when there was an outbreak of um, the Middle East respiratory syndrome, there was no information given to the citizens about um, what the government was actually doing to help people and where patients were being kept and things like that. And I think that sense of distrust in authority really comes out, particularly in Train to Busan. And it really stuck with me the way in which, you know, there's there's this confusion and people become self-centered in those in those acts and like this deadbeat dad who's at the center, he he kind of he, it's like a learning curve for him. Um all of the even a lot of um a lot of Yon's other films are quite dark and have really unlikable characters. But this film is actually littered with kindness and very sweet characters, which is what is possibly makes it so adorable, particularly um his little daughter, who's um super cute. But um, I feel like it's an interesting take on how South Korean society could respond and actually answering these um, this sense of distrust or sense of um, helplessness with kindness and it's kind of what gets gets them through. Um, I'm making it way more darker than it needs to be, but this is <laughs> such a fun film, such a fun film and um, lots of fantastic characters and very funny again. My favourite are the two older women where yes. <laughs> one of the women is quite clearly played by a very young actress in yeah. a week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so true. It's funny. It's You're right, Flick. Like, Yeon Song-ho's, anim- like, it's so weird. Mm, Who his goes- anime's dark. His anime- Animated films are so incredibly yeah. dark and political. Yeah. Like, it's like the opposite to most other films. It's yes. like gritty real, real films and then go to <laughs> animation where it's all happy. Yeah. This guy flips that on its head. Um, this film is crazy. Um, <laughs> I, my first viewing, I first watched this on New Year's Eve in 2017. It's a wild way to exit a year. Um, <laughs> it's funny because I think most folks, myself included, have zombie fatigue right? Like we've seen it all before. And this is essentially 28 days later on a train. So this is my one, uh, I I am a George Romero acolyte, but my one uh, rebuttal to his whole slow moving, fast moving zombies thing. I feel like things like 28 days later and this film, it's not the dead walking. It's a disease Mm. and wreck is the same. Like it's a, it's a virus and a virus is very different to Romero zombies, which are literally the dead coming back to life. Mm. So you know, a little bit of a pedantry there. But, yeah, I totally defend films like this for their fast because while they're being called zombies, they're actually really the infected. Um, but so many instances, including myself, this film, Train to Busan, has been the exception that proves the rule. It's like the zombie film for people who are jaded with zombie films. And I think probably one reason is because it centres its characters so heavily but really, it's so incredibly primal. And for me, I think, though, the thing that really makes it sing is it has a real gift. Um, it's just a model of story construction and escalation of conflict. Um, it's the kind of thing Pixar are so great at. <laughs> but for this film, it's like it's just one thing after another, after another, after another. And it's like, oh, you think they got out? Then this happens. And then this happens. Mm-hmm. But what if this happens? And it's just everything turns up the screws to become, as you say, flick, hectic. 
Um, the characters and the viewer go through absolute hell. There's no respite. I mean, it's very funny as well, but it's just so stressful. There's no respite until literally the very last shot. You know, mm. like even to that point, you're like, it's all going to go south. Even then, but like there's that that fight. We won't say what happens, obviously. Yeah. But I was watching this at Miff when I first saw it, and that final moment, you're like, no, that can't happen. Like, but then it's like, of course it's going to happen. Like, when has there been a light moment in this film? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, there's that terrible montage bit. Are we going to talk about that? <laughs> Which bit's that? <laughs> when he's um, when he's thinking about his. Daughter. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> not, not a great. montage as such. Sorry, like a flashback. That's the way yes, there is. That's the thing. The character introductions are a bit broad but they're as efficient and economical as they need to be to get us on our way and the actors in the situation do the rest. It it rarely devolves into the kind of sap that mainstream Korean blockbusters can fall into, and I think that 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 montage of talking of flick is probably the closest the film gets to it. It's yeah. not it's like it does kind of go into that. Because, yeah, I, Korean blockbusters can be pretty sappy. Yeah, like, I think it's interesting, isn't it? I was surprised over across all of these films there's a real sense of melodrama, and I love mm. melodrama, but it can sometimes teeter into the saccharine sort of territory. But I actually think that this film is able to pull itself out of that through the fact it's like anchored by these really quite gritty um mm. gritty kind of social issues like I was even thinking the fact of you're talking before about it being a virus and like the reason why it kind of starts in on the train is because they are more concerned about the homeless man who is muttering to himself in the toilet than they are about the teenage girl who's obviously infected yes yeah. you know it's kind of people's um you know mm. disc- you know without realizing it casting aspersions on this man but not worried at all about you know a school girl yeah, so yeah. It, it's kind of interesting how it plays into that yeah, there's a sequel uh, that uh, is was at Cannes, um, and uh, basically it's going to be Train to Busan, but Fast and the Furious. <laughs> Good lord! Yeah, Two Busan, Too Furious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that really is. That really is too fast, too furious. <laughs> um, also, how good is Ma Dong Siok as the uh, burly uh, expected oh, father? He's my I favorite. love him. He's so good. He's so comforting to watch as well when he's like really beating is. up the zombies. And yeah, one thing, him. one thing I didn't know about him—he's a Korean American. Oh right. He grew up in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah right. Ah. This is a complete that. surprise to me, even though he's you know famous in Korean uh, Korean cinema. Um, but yes, it does. It it's it's really beautiful and fun, and ends up being genuinely touching at sometimes too. So, Train to Busan is now streaming on Netflix and SBS on demand, and is available to rent or buy on YouTube, Apple TV Plus, and Google Play. You have been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flick Ford, Stewie Richards, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. On tonight's ISO Spotlight on the Hallyu South Korean New Wave of Cinema, we reviewed Mother, now available to rent or buy on YouTube, Apple TV Plus, and Google Play, The Handmaiden, now available to rent or buy via Apple TV Plus, and Train to Busan, now streaming on Netflix and SBS On Demand, and available to rent or buy on YouTube, Apple TV, and Google Play. You can also subscribe to the Primal Screen Podcast via iTunes or wherever else you can find your favourite podcasts. Join us next week when we will be looking at epics. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and we've also uh, possibly got an interview. So stay tuned to our social media channels this week 
just search for Primal Screen on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and we will slowly reveal, uh, like a drip feed torture in a Park Chan Wook film, what those will be. <laughs> A huge thank you to Morty Osborne for editing the Primal Screen podcast, to Keller Carl Chapman for panelling and providing a producing assistance for our show. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 